Hello and welcome to the 8th Annual Talk Gnosis Halloween Special. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Deacon Jonathan Stabbersh, and I'm joined by the Talk Gnosis All-Stars for an informal panel about the shadow. So, we have Jay, son of the devil, Memhel, and Bishop, <laughs> Bishop Grimm, Mansfield, full of corpses. Uh, yeah, that, man, man's graveyard, maybe? Man's graveyard. Man's graveyard. That's good, I'm taking that. Yeah, gentlemen, uh, so glad that you could uh, join me this spooky, dark, and rainy evening for uh, this informal panel about the shadow. The topic of the shadow has come up on many past editions of Talk Gnosis, and we thought that it would be fun and seasonal to delve into it in sort of a chill way with everybody's favorite returning guests. So, I didn't write questions, I just have conversation starters. That's okay. that have that have question marks at the end of them. Here's the first one. <laughs> Why is shadow work so important for those interested in spiritual development? Uh, I'm just gonna freestyle. Um, yes, that's the point. Good. Uh, I'll I'll make a beat. <laughs> no, no, please stop. This will be. This will truly scare people away if I try that. <laughs> Um, but no, uh, like in, in the tradition of last minute cramming, uh, and I was, as I was re-examining what just is on what the shadow is about, it's not just necessarily about bad things or, or, um, dark things necessarily, but it's literally those things that we can't see about in ourselves. Um, those things we're not paying attention to, which also could be, um, uh, like good parts of ourselves that we are choosing not to believe in or not to engage with. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, 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 the facile answer is simply that it's important because you want to know the parts of yourself you haven't been looking at before you start digging, digging where those, where those, uh, uh, uh entities are lying, you know? Yes, exactly. I, and I think that's a good point, particularly in, in the thought of Jung, where, for him, it's it's everything that we don't want to acknowledge or don't know about ourselves gets pushed pushed into the shadow, and that's usually the sublimination of things we don't like about ourselves. But it, it's not just that for Jung; it, it is uh, just like Jason was saying, good things as well. So when we delve into it, we're able to integrate aspects of ourselves that could be quite helpful to ourselves and others, and aspects of ourselves could be quite positive. The other thing too uh, that, that I think is interesting from a Jungian perspective, is that the shadow is, is where we put things that we don't, it's the part of ourselves that is honest forward and that we don't know, slash uh, the, where we push things down, where things get suppressed, things that we don't like about ourselves, things that we think are bad and evil about ourselves. But there's the trick. It's things that we think are bad and evil about ourselves, and we're often much more harsh on ourselves, uh, both consciously and unconsciously, than we are on others. So there might be qualities, aspects, skills, abilities that we, for some reason, have thought of uh, as negative and have subliminated, pushed all the way down and suppressed, which, of course, could lead to a greater sense of integration, psychological health and wholeness if we can dig in and bring those out and realize, hey, I always thought this was a bad part of myself, but actually, you know, people like this. Or if they don't like it, uh, maybe this is a, a more harsh part of myself, but there's times when I can draw it out and it's of use. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I I think there's 
just while you guys are talking, I'm kind of it's probably four things, and I'm going to forget three of them by the time I start. So, <laughs> like, I, I really like the formulation that the the self is is is, prob, is kind of can be thought of as the ego and the shadow, and then maybe some extra stuff, right? So, so if you're trying to, you know, if you're following the the injunction know thyself, then then most of yourself isn't the ego. Mm-hmm. So if you're actually trying to know yourself, then you'd better get acquainted with the rest of it. But also, so that's one thing. So second thing is, as you just said, Jonathan, I think there's a, there's a real dynamic between this. Yeah, it's that saying my mum used to use the faults we see in others are those we have ourselves, right? That's a, that's a common sense folk way of expressing this idea about shadow. And, and it's true, right? So the stuff that we, that drives us completely nuts about other people if you're driven completely nuts by something, if you're overtaken by a reactive emotion, it means there's, there's shadow business in play. There's something about the boundary between your ego and your shadow in play in that conversation. Mm. And that restricts your capacity to be loving and empathetic and patient and kind and all those things that, you know, spiritual teachers and spiritual teachings tell us this is the, you know, what we're developing in spiritual work. All that's restrained by your shadow, because if your shadow stuff is getting triggered, you're getting emotionally reactive with people when that's probably not the smoothest move, right? Yeah. So dealing with shadow helps you, but it also it's also really good for the people around you because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't necessarily sign on for all that. Third thing is, um, gosh, there was a third thing. See, I told you I'd forget most of them. <laughs> yeah, it'll we'll say back. something. We'll say something that'll trigger it, and, and yeah. it'll come back. Yeah. Well, oh. uh, Sorry, yeah. can I even just to jump in there? Do it. Yeah. Now, well, and so like this is, and I, I think it's actually important to to talk about like mundane benefits as well as like you know sort of maybe spiritual or more like like I had a crazy vision uh, uh, moments as well. Uh, Tim, did you remember what you were going to say? Uh, keep going. I've got it. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget it again. Um, is uh, like so. I recently, like j- to to personally disclose, but I, I have no problem disclosing this. Is that I? Uh, uh, so I have ADHD, and um, I like I was medicated through high school and 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 junior high. It that w- it worked well for me, and then I finished uh, un- finished high school, and I didn't need it. Like I was living a life that didn't that didn't require the kind of focus that 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 the medication was giving me, and then I moved through my life either developing coping mechanisms or being involved in things that didn't that didn't require what that medication was giving me but over the last five years or so with especially in the kind of work that i've been doing as a as a freelance theater director running a a not-for-profit arts company in a country and a province that is increasingly less interested in that in in supporting that um uh in general i mean there's, there's been some really great support from like some of our funders but anyway um is that uh, it took essentially like going through about five years of this unstructured life to realize that all of the support I built for myself wasn't working, but I'd forgotten about ADHD. And so I had internalized so much shame and, uh, and discomfort about how I was doing my job, not acknowledging, not focusing on the fact that there was a part of me that was, there was a, there was a, like a, a medical, a chemical part of me that was causing that limitation, not a moral failing or a, you know what right. I mean? Like a, a like a, just a lack of innate quality. And, um, and that conversely, I, since, since I've engaged with that problem, since I faced that particular shadow that was lurking, I have had the best 
uh, or like a, a much better month than I've had in the last few years. Um, so I, I might be proselytizing here a little for for, <laughs> for for focusing on ADHD, but I I just I, I think I mentioned it because I realized how much I had let it stay hidden, you know, um, and and in fact, literally the shame was what kept me from focusing on it. Right. Yeah. Right, which connects to one of the things I remembered actually. Great. Because it uh, <laughs> because because by definition, shadow stuff is is unconscious, mm -hmm. then it constrains what you're able to notice. It's exactly it's, you know, your head only points in certain directions. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't there's stuff you can't look at. And what that means in in spiritual work is there are things you're going to not be able to look at or do or face or think about or or an act or engage with because the shadow the, that construct of ego and shadow, the ego is going to draw you towards things that keep it safe and the shadow is going to work to prevent itself getting seen. And that's going to constrain what you're able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that, I think, is that spiritual work by its nature, um, depending on you know how you configure this, spiritual work by its nature uncovers things. Yeah. <laughs> it, it reveals the hidden and, and the shadow is no exception. So that stuff is going to come roaring out of the basement, um, like it or not. And if you're not if you don't take up a practice of doing something about your shadow in a proactive way, mm -hmm. then that's the, that stuff is going to come roaring up out of the basement and whack you around the back of the head and take your money and clothes and mobile phone and leave you in the gutter. Sorry, I'm overextending the metaphor. Well, but but to 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 run with that is that like and you, and if you, that that person who took your wallet, uh, if you don't acknowledge your shadow work, you might not understand what it was that stole your wallet and think it's something else. Exactly. You know, well, which takes you to the the Rigardi thing about doing psychotherapy. If you're going to be doing esoteric work, you've got to be doing psychotherapy ideally first, or at least alongside, mm -hmm. because it's really easy to decide that there's a demon involved when the demon's in here. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's we're going to connect to that in some of your other prompts, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. I'll stay on this topic for a. a just for a little bit longer to add just about the day-to-day -day practicality outside of, which of course is spirituality as well, but outside the, the lofty visions and the ascensions as Jason was talking about, where, you know, this is psychology 101. We repress things, they're outside of our conscious, and they influence behaviors and projections that we push on other people, right? This is the first, right. this, this is the, the first insight of Freud and all psychology. Um, well, so very at, least the, at least the psychodynamic side of it, anyway. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, behaviorists would disagree with you, but sure. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they're wrong. So. Um... Well, they, well, they just they just talk about it as conditioning, and that's not an yeah. inappropriate way to talk about it either. So go. Yes. On. Good point. Yeah. So, so 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 this doesn't seem like that wacky when I put it into those terms because these are very accepted concepts now, right? Lots of people have done some form of therapy. They've taken a psych 101 in university, or you know, I remember learning about this in high school. But for the day-to-day -day practicality of it and sort of the intersection of of psychology day to day and and meditation and we'll get into that later when we're talking about practices but but i remember going on a long meditation retreat and just very basic right for if you're meditating 12 hours a day you're not doing anything else you start to do shadow work like i think meditation is a good way of integrating uh, uh the shadow the unconscious starts to discharge and you have to face a lot of things and then you know very simple small epiphany but uh, uh in a day-to-day -day avoidant behavior that i realized i engaged in and hurt others had roots in my childhood 
very basic story that I'm Amazing. sure a lot of people, yes, <laughs> of anything that anybody here listening can can relate. But it was, you know, it was an epiphany. It's like, okay, you know, this this was a pattern that I learned as a kid. I've forgotten about this. I've pushed it down. Yet it still influences my behavior without me noticing. And this is why I do this to people around me. So it's very, very practical, uh, very A to B, uh, not much woo about it. But of course, when we introduce spirituality and spiritual paths and spiritual practice, practices, I, I think it does deepen it. And like you're saying, Bishop Tim, s spirituality actually brings this stuff to the forefront perhaps more than mon many mundane activities. Double-edged sword though, right? Because it can, Yep. but it also gives you a terrific tool for avoiding it. Yes, spiritual yeah. bypassing. Spiritual bypassing. So um, there's a great essay that was floating around on the internet uh, uh, a few years ago now, but you can still find it. it it's call something like horrors of a zen boyfriend i think uh, <laughs> um and it it's a it's a it's a kind of a fun way of talking about the idea of spiritual bypassing but that that thing of like just avoiding and you know there are there are there are flavors of spirituality where we talk about negative and malign emotions and there's a lot of stuff in western esotericism and in some schools of buddhism where you talk about like you know turning away from negative emotions or or rising to the higher self and leaving behind the animal nature which we talk about in european esotericism quite a lot um and it's really easy to to motivate all that i mean the desert fathers used to just <laughs> get aspects of the shadow and yell psalms at them to make them go away <laughs> yes it's a method uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's uh and they keep coming back and you'd have to keep yelling the psalms more i, I can't imagine what was going on there beset <laughs> by these terrible demons um we laugh now but i think that it's really easy to then use particularly like transcendence focused meditation where you're kind of you know you're dropping centering prayer can be really good for avoiding things yeah any kind of stillness based meditation can be really good for avoiding things and you know you find yourself in day-to-day -day and things are tumultuous so you go and pray or you go and meditate it's like calm the system down and don't deal with the upset but the upset sometimes that's getting triggered sometimes by meditation is the thing that you need to in order to deal with this stuff and to overcome this kind of like hard divide between the ego and the shadow and make that more permeable mm -hmm. you've got to be prepared to step into the upset to recruit the the equanimity and the peace that you're accumulating through spiritual work and use that as a basis for stepping into the upset and actually inquiring into what is this actually about Pro tip, as Jonathan says, 90% of the time, it's about something to do with your childhood. And in fact, <laughs> it's probably something to do with your mum. <laughs> yeah. At least for me, mine's embarrassing. Mine's like 95% of my shadow is stuff from my childhood to do with my mother. Yeah. I am like, uh, I'm like a cartoon about Freudianism. It's hilarious. <laughs> you know, uh, well, and, and I think like why, uh, again, I, it, it's, it's such a recent example and I found it so empowering. So I'm, I'm, I'll try not to just make this about that my experience, my recent experience, but like the 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 way I discovered it was through therapy, you know, through psychoanalytic therapy that um, that was engaging with my problems in a way that was not uh, that was not focused on finding an external answer and and again like I, that, that's why I, like I agree so much with what you were saying there, Tim, because um, rather than like I spent way too long feeling that pain and, and, uh, and moving away from it, you know, trying to 
find a way to meditate my way past it or pray away from it or, you know, just just to kind of get away from the icky feeling, but then turning around and talking to my therapist and going, this is a problem and I need to do something. I need to be active, not passive about it is exactly right. what what, uh, what transitioned it into, into a thing that I now can move forward with, you know, and which feels so empowering. So like I, 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 the reason I dwell on it is simply that it's, it's, I feel like it's a, it's a real, really recent direct example that I can use, uh, that I can tell people about regarding what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Precisely. Okay. So the, the next, uh, talking point, uh, to bring to the panel is in what ways does narcissism address the shadow? Huh. Well, let me hop in if that's okay. I, Oh, wait, I'm a guest on the show. It's okay for me to hop in. I guess that's all right. Um, you're, you're literally here to hop. That's literally, that's the job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, my go-to is the secret book of John, as always, yeah. Apocryphon of John, and um, the story of the creation of, of humanity, right, which is the, the tale of the crafting of, of Adam. Um, and Adam's made by the Demiurge and the Archons, um, and first they construct the, the soul body. You'd probably say the nefesh in Kabbalistic terms. They put together this, and it, all of the Archons are involved in putting together this astral body of Adam. Um, and creating it with all the various little body parts. Um, and then eventually that astral body is, is bound into the four elements, which are the, the cage that it's put in to keep it from, from seeing itself. Right. And that's, that's a really interesting and evocative passage that you, I think, you know, multiple readings to kind of like, what, what are we actually being told here? Right. So superficially it's this cosmological story about these terrible demonic entities called archons and this terrible chief ruler, called the other Baoth. Um, but it's quite clear that each of them is putting some of themselves into the formation of this human being. So this, this human being is ruled by a chief ruler that like each of us has in ourselves, this chief ruler and this chief ruler is commanding this ranked army of, of beings that are, you know, doing stuff in our soul body that isn't about the, you know, the higher genius that we might be connected to and the divine spark that we're, we're holding. It's, we're just kind of getting moved around at the order of something without our kind of conscious, conscious will. So mm -hmm. I'm going beyond the word, the letter of the text, because it doesn't go into anything about what one ought to do about that. There's a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff in the, in the latter part of the book about the counterfeit spirit, which I think you could recruit in some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of the converse to epinoia. So epinoia kind of brings us up to the pleroma and the counterfeit spirit kind of distracts us and deludes us. But this whole iconic system, which is all about, so to me, what that's saying, what that's mirroring in a cosmological sense is this idea of this master control ego, which is trying to order the internals of the system about. And part of the ways it orders things about is, is by maintaining this, this fiction of who the self is. And everything Yaldabaoth does in Secret Book of John is, you know, I am the only ruler and I am the boss of everything and there is no one else and I am the thing and I know all the things and I'm, you know, it's all egoic pretense with all the keystone cops falling over that all egos have. <laughs> Turns out I wasn't as smart as I thought. Um, yeah, so that it, it, it's sort of, 
I think what the text is partly doing is trying to evoke that sense of the conscious and the unconscious and that the, the primary mechanism that holds the whole thing in, pl in place is this interior insistence on control. Yeah. Mm, mm. And that that, because when you look at the, the depiction of the upper realm of the Pleroma, it's not about control. It's this sort of harmonious dance of willing interplay between the divine persons. It's mm -hmm. beautiful. And, you know, people request things and then there's consent and agreement and everything kind of flows around and it's all very sort of beautiful. Whereas there's, you know, ironclad armies of, of stamping minions in the, in the lower realm. And so I think that question of the insistence on interior control and the function that interior control plays in maintaining the, the structure of the ego, I think, is something that comes out of Secret John for me. Um, and sits awkwardly with a lot of, again, a lot of stuff in lots of our uh, spiritual material about the will and self-control and mm. all that stuff. You know, that's, that's all stuff that I think you need to think a bit about. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And I'll also turn to, to Secret John as well, where the, the creation of the Demiurge... John, I can. We can't, we can't let the John alone. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> but it's, 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 as I've said many times on, on the show, and, and as you just reiter reiterated, you know, you can, you can spend an entire lifetime with one passage. It's a, an immensely dense book. Mm -hmm. um, but anybody who hasn't read it, it's fun. You know, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things happening and a lot of great uh, mythology in that one. But anyways, so we had this idea of the mistake of Sophia, the fall of Sophia, the sin of Sophia. But of course... What is her 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 great crime? She with just like Bishop Tim was talking about it, the pleroma, which is pictured within the secret book of John as sort of a large interconnected mind, a brain with different aspects, different aeons, different uh, angelic uh, godlike beings are actually personifications of thought, and they're working together in harmony. Right? This is a psychological metaphor on one level, uh, because all of these uh, gods have the names of psychological processes and things that go on within people's brains. So Sophia, wisdom, untested wisdom, uh, creates but doesn't do it in harmony, right? Does it right. separately. Okay, that's, I don't think that's her, her big sin or her mistake, right? Her quote-unquote sin, the worst thing she did is she created outside of harmony, so the creation goes wrong and she's horrified at what she created, right? The demiurge. It's misshapen. So what does she do? She doesn't bring it back into harmony, back into the great mind, back into the divine brain she pushes it away and literally pushes it into shadow right and that's where everything goes it, wrong she hides it in a cloud behind a throne yes yeah precisely so I, I don't i you know we're, we're looking to 1900 years uh 1700 years before we have uh the first modern psychologist looking at these concepts about repression in the shadow and this i don't think this is a modern reading Right, that this is this is a, a metaphor that's a little too on the nose. It, it's a bit brutal. Uh, yeah. It's actually a little less sophisticated than some of the other Gnostic material. Um, so I've got to I got to interrupt you here, if only to say that, like, uh, and maybe this is a prelude of like a, a pop gnosis episode we'll do later. But like, this is basically the beginning of Batman Returns, where the Penguin it becomes a villain because they throw him away. Yes, precisely. So like, uh, well. Uh, that's a Christmas Sorry, one too, so we should maybe <laughs> we should try to do that this holiday season. Uh, the the gnosis of the Batman Returns, but you're right, that's it precisely right. And the Penguin wouldn't have grown up to be a monster if he hadn't been thrown into a sewer. That's it. That's yep. it. 
Yeah. Uh, so yes, so that that is an obvious teaching, but as I said, very insightful because it's it's uh, thousands of years before psychology. The other thing I'd say that Gnosticism, there's some of the other things, and I, I think Gnosticism has a lot to say about the shadow. Like one, the demiurge, the 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 process is sort of reversed, where where we have the consciousness out front and the shadow hidden, right? Where in Gnosticism, the demiurge is God's shadow, and that's what we encounter first. Like all all the things we don't like about God, uh, and all the things that God tried to repress, and all the things that we repress about God and don't like about God are pushed onto the demiurge, right? Which is, right. and then behind the demiurge, above the demiurge, is true reality. So flipping things around a, a little bit, even though the demiurge is also the ego. But final thing I'll say: uh, lots of things Gnosticism says, but uh, Gnostics are big about the the. The death and resurrection of Jesus as being an initiatory journey that we all go on, and it happens to us in our lives, right? Uh, Gospel of Philip, we eat out on this quote all the time. I never get the quote right, even though we say it almost once an episode. <laughs> but <laughs> you have to be, uh, you have to, uh, some people say that, uh, um, uh, like, you have to be crucified in this life. I'm really getting the quote wrong, but you have to be crucified here and now and resurrect here and now. Right. Some people say that you you die and then you're resurrected. No, you have to be resurrected to actually live. Okay. So you have to go through the crucifixion process in a in a metaphorical spiritual way. But if we look at the crucifixion story, what happens immediately after after the crucifixion? Jesus descends into hell. Yeah. Goes into the shadow. So the Gnostics actually say this is a if you want to be enlightened, if you want to be whole, you do have to descend. And of course, many Gnostic scriptures a few times say to ascend, you must first descend. There's there's also like a, a, a huge uh, sort of Joseph Campbellian, uh, uh, Jungian, you know, narrative arc there where like you'd need to go through the cave to get to get to the point where you're getting where you're bringing the treasure back, you know, like. You don't just like you don't go on your adventure, find the treasure, you know, like five minutes out of town, and then bring it back and be like, that was easy, you know. Yeah, um, that's that's shopping. That's not a quest. <laughs> 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 oh my god! Now I want to do Joseph Campbell's shopping circle. The, the hero shop. <laughs> the hero shops. <laughs> um, but uh, oh man, I okay. I have, a whole, I have a ton of ideas, but I'm going to squelch them for now because I <laughs> the the one other thought that I have about the way. The way Gnosticism addresses the shadow is that I think, in some respects, Gnosticism as a as a genre's own shadow can be a certain kind of bypassing that we do through the uh, the de through the definition of the archons and the demiurge as a way to try to blame everything going wrong in the world on these forces. Yeah. Right. Like I can think of a lot of Gnostic uh, uh, writings and and, uh, uh, and and like speakings out there that seem to be focused on on externalizing. It, like it, this is all someone else's fault. This is all someone else's uh, uh, force, and that um, and so it's like it's 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 uh, it's ignoring the shadow. It's ignoring. The fact, what, what, like what uh, Tim was saying about the the notion of that thing that that is right behind you that you're not looking at, right? And instead, it's it's actually like, you know, it uh, uh, like one way I found it, I found a way to describe it is that it feels like uh, uh, some practitioners are actually creating the bars of the black iron prison by holding onto them so tightly, because they want they want to be able to push against that rather than turn around and look inside. Yeah. 
and notice that there's no back wall to the prison cage and it's a garden. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a Walter, Walter Wink, mm -hmm. um, significant Protestant theologian wrote the powers trilogy and the powers that be and stuff. He has an interpretation of the powers, the archons in Paul, and he, he gets to Gnostic, to Gnostic material in some of his work as well. Um, as the, the kind of the, the spiritual dimension of human institutions and organizations. Mm -hmm. For him, that's what it means, right? So, so when, we, when we're fighting against the powers, the, these, these iconic entities are the institutions that we're in, including churches, right? Including, he says, including our own church, right? This is the thing. This is the, the these presences are there and they're not benign, right? They're all fallen. All organizations and institutions by their nature are fallen in, in Protestant terms. Um, and, but they can all be <laughs> redeemed. We can all be redeemed. Uh, like any human, like any being can be redeemed. That's the love of God is that all things can be redeemed. So they're all fallen. They can all be redeemed. And so our job is to contend with them and redeem them. But it's a constant work of redeeming them, which mm -hmm. is a, that's a lovely twist on it, right? Like it's, it, it goes beyond the, oh, you know, the cosmological stuff. And, and a, it goes beyond a simplistic kind of political read of, of Gnosticism, I think. But, yeah. but there's a dimension to that. And this could go a long way, so let's not get too distracted by it. But, <laughs> but shadow's not personal, right? It's interpersonal and transpersonal. Mm. So if, if mm. a bunch of us are together in an institution or an organization and we're, we're denying common things, you know, we've all agreed that these things are, these things about ourselves, we sort of unconsciously or, or covertly agree that these, these things we don't like about ourselves are bad things, you know, and they, we all agree that they ought to be repressed. And therefore the people that do them outside who aren't repressing them are obviously bad people. So that effectively what's happening is all of our shadows are cohering uh. and making a, a hidden system in this institution that we're building. So it's not just me and my personal shadow. It's that the institution that I'm in with other people collects and, and interweaves this kind of, hologram of shadow that holds the whole institution together. And that's, oh, that's kind of what I think. I mean, it's obvious once you say it, right? Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> Except and, we're not allowed to look at it. So of course it's not obvious because you're never allowed to look at it. But I, I, I just based on what you said, I want to now do a crossover episode with the conspirituality uh, 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 guest that was on a little while ago, because that's exactly, I think, a great way to talk about how pernicious the spread of, of a lot of those ideas are. Is that it is a it is a confluence of shadow. It is a like, it is an interconnected network of shadow, that is yeah. That's fascinating. For me, the some of the deepest aspects of my own shadow stuff have been. There's there's issues in my own life, in my spiritual work actually. I mean, in my, my pastoral work, where friends, I've got a bunch of friends who are psychotherapists, which is a great sort of irritating on the one hand and also a great blessing on the other because they. <laughs> They don't let me look away from things if I'm looking at it. And there's been issues, you know, I've been a priest for getting on towards 12, 13 years now. And, and there's stuff where psychotherapy friends have kind of said, you know, I'll, I'll be talking about some issue with, with somebody and, and they'll say, but why are you doing this, but you're not doing that? Like, that seems like the obvious thing to do. And I'd find myself, like, I'd come up with all these rationalizations for why I couldn't do this, that they were pointing to. But the truth of it was, I couldn't think about that mm. I'm a, like what they were suggesting which I acknowledged from a rational frame one thing was 
um, I can't think of a good example. I can't think of a good example that doesn't breach confidentiality. But anyway, <laughs> boundary stuff sometimes. You know, like I, I, there'd be places where I wouldn't be holding clear boundaries with somebody. And from the psychotherapist's point of view, that was obviously dumb, right? Like, obviously, if you're going to be doing that job for decades, you've got to be, that's a boundary you've really got to be able to hold. And I found myself unable to hold that boundary. And they point that out to me and, and I couldn't, I couldn't, my brain couldn't think about it. I couldn't go past the initial thought that it was a thing into what that would actually even mean. It was really weird. Mm. And it's only because I had someone else. I mean, this is why, this is why therapy is helpful. It's also why compassionate and insistent friends are really helpful, but getting <laughs> your head, my head couldn't turn that way. Right. So getting yeah. someone else to go, no, look, it's just like this, <laughs> that, yeah, no, sorry, I can't do it. <laughs> no, 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 there, I can't do it, you know. And it took a lot of, uh, took a lot of pointing. So that, why did I bring all that up? Like, if you think about that, like that's the deep stuff. Right? This, this sort of superficial layers of shadow, which is just things that irritate you, and you know that. But then yeah. there's some of that deep stuff, which is real, like genuinely a blind spot. Not yeah. thinkable, not seeable, can't even. So if you imagine being in a group of people where you've all got that common blind spot, what are you going to do about it, right? Yeah. And anybody that comes in and tries to point you to it is a troublemaker that needs to get thrown out and they're not like us and they're not one of us and they're not, you know, you know, one <laughs> first letter of John kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting too. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that actually leads right into to the next talking point that I have, which we've already danced around and addressed and talked about, and, and uh, Bishop Tim did just uh, speak about, but perhaps we have some more, we'll discover. And it's why should specifically spiritual leaders, why should they have already worked with, be working with, and addressed the darker aspects of themselves? Can I... I I, I think it's the bishop I get first dibs on this one, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, All yours. <laughs> look, there's a bunch of reasons. Um, there's a bunch of reasons. Some of them are about your own health and well-being, and some of them are about your community's health and well-being. Yeah. Um, in terms of the safety of the community, I think people in a spiritual community I was going to say have a right, but people don't have this right because clearly in spiritual communities, this isn't how things work. You ought to have the right to be certain that the person that you're, that is leading your community isn't doing things out of their own control, right? Yeah. You ought to know, you ought to be certain really that if they're doing something, they intend it and they're not doing things that they didn't intend mostly. Whereas actually what we see in spiritual communities is spiritual teachers and spiritual leaders engaging in sexual misconduct, in emotional and physical abuse with people, in in-group and out-group kind of pathologizing black and white thinking behavior and, and you know, shaming people for not, for not fitting in. And the bulk of that, I would argue that the bulk of that kind of activity that happens in spiritual communities is, is the teacher's shadow in play. And then in the, using, you know, with the mechanisms that we're talking about, the interlocked other shadows of the senior leadership people in the community in play and that's all out of everyone's awareness and that shouldn't be the case right you you're going into a community to wake up to wake up to be free to learn how to live a life to live a full life 
you know, mm -hmm. to work out what life is in its fullness. And actually you're getting, you're getting led by people whose life is partial and shut down and closed off. And that oughtn't be the case, I think. Um, so there's that. The particularly stuff like um, sexual misconduct and emotional abuse, that's shadow stuff. That's hardcore shadow stuff. No one should have to go through that and that shouldn't be present. And if you get any whiff that's present, I don't care what else your benefit you're getting from that community. Those benefits are in other places. Get out of there. You don't deserve that. So that's one thing. Second thing, um, speaking from personal experience, there is, if you're drawn to this kind of, so I'm not a spiritual teacher. I'm a, I'm a bishop, right? I, 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 I do didache, right? I teach. I, <laughs> I'm not a guru, right? I'm a, I'm a pun in, 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 Indian terms, I'm a pundit, not a guru, right? Like I, I, I teach material. I don't, I don't take on the karma of others, but, um, but in pastoral work, the, my shadow stuff just about has, it's killed me nearly a couple of times. There's been, there's been times when I've, I've gone down a path with, with certain people and it's driven me to desperation. I, I, had something pretty close to a nervous breakdown several years ago in a pastoral matter, in a, in a pastoral context with someone. And that was my shadow stuff. That was, that was, um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to say something that's sufficiently personal without bridging confidentiality again. <laughs> but um, in that particular case, the situation, what really needed to happen in the situation was that a line needed to get drawn quite early and I needed to hold that line. That's what it would have been good for the benefit of the person, and it would have been good for my own health and well-being. That would have been the, that would have been the sanest, most compassionate thing to do. And I didn't do that. I let that boundary go, and I let it go and go and go and go and go and go for months. And it didn't help anyone. It didn't. I thought what I was doing was being compassionate to the person, and I was not being compassionate to the person. It didn't help at all. And it nearly killed me. So killed. You know, I nearly had a. I nearly wound up somewhere quiet in the country for a few months. Um, and that's because I couldn't tolerate the idea of being mean. I had stuff from my childhood where I think I'd received messages from probably my mum, but some, someone in my, my family that I was cruel and self-centered. And a huge part of my ego for most of my life has been built around constantly proving that I'm not cruel and self-centered mm. all the time. Now, if you're clergy, <laughs> you've probably got something like that going on. <laughs> <laughs> something constitutive in your, in your egoic structure is probably set about proving or disproving something like that. That's why you're prepared to give the way that we're, we're drawn to give, right? So you've got to face that stuff because that's not, that's not helping anyone. So that, that kind of leads me to the other dimension of it, which is the, sorry, Jonathan, I don't want to, I don't want to trigger you, but the, the trunkfer phrase, um, <laughs> <laughs> the trunkfer phrase, idiot compassion, which I think yeah. is a, which is by which he means um, doing things which seem compassionate or, or a sort of a performance of compassion, but actually it's something which isn't benefiting it isn't giving the person the benefit that they really need because you're too caught up in your own stuff. So you're doing something not to actually help them. You're doing something because you can't tolerate that person's distress. 
and you can't tolerate your own emotional reactions to that person's distress, which is all shadow stuff. And yes. so you're acting to stop the distress because you can't handle it. Whereas yeah. that's usually not what somebody needs. Tim, I think you just tickled a, a shadow back there for me. <laughs> you know, let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> I, I I don't even know if I can like. I'm just really responding to a lot of what you were saying there about like that notion of of trying to solve someone else's distress uh, um, because that uh, that seems to be the solution is just making the bad feelings go away. Right. You know? um, uh, and just that notion of like of I like I should help. Helping is what I should be doing. You know, and helping helping looks like this. This is what it has to be. Yeah, like that. That I, I don't know if I can fully. I won't fully psychoanalyze myself on this meeting, <laughs> on this session, but I will. I will say that I think. I think you. Let me, you, let me find a notepad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, what? Uh, a couple of thoughts based uh, that I want to respond to from what. Um, one thing when I saw the question itself, and then I, I want to actually ask uh, ask Tim a question. Um, is that so like the like why should spiritual leaders have worked with and addressed the dark aspects of themselves and this also kind of connects to what your previous episode was tim about uh uh integral spirituality and like the importance of teachers to engage with that one thing that, that that's got me thinking about this is uh less of a question i guess more of a statement but it's got me thinking about shifting some of my relationships uh uh like with people that i see as leaders uh in my in my various capacities in the arts and spirituality and and uh in some of my hobbies shifting the idea of seeing them as leaders or gurus and starting to see them as colleagues colleagues and, and that like being able to do that has actually helped me take like take less anxiety about or feel less anxiety about like because now i now i can see them as somebody making an offer versus giving me a rule you know um uh, and then the other thing, like, this is a bigger question, but like, so when you're, when you were talking about some of the shadow stuff that's happening, what kind of public, do we have a, a sense of public responsibility if we see it happening in our community? Um, or if we see it happening in the, in the like larger world of, of esotericism, like, um, d do we call it out? Do we question it? You know, um. Uh, like, I, I guess I'm wondering, is there like an activist mode for that kind of like, uh, um, if we're, if we're seeing dangerous behavior? Definitely, definitely. It's worth calling out dangerous behavior. Calling out shadow is, doesn't go well. <laughs> no, no. Doesn't go well because by definition, if the person, if the person's acting out of an unconscious impulse, they can't see it. So mm -hmm. pointing it out to them, isn't going to suddenly, oh, you're right. Oh my gosh. I mean, there are, there are certain stages of development where it's possible for someone to catch themselves in the act of projection in the moment of doing it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if they can do that, they're probably not a problem in the first place, <laughs> right? So for, for people before that kind of stage of development, people can't see it. Like, can't see, like, it's possible that three or four months later or several years later, they might reflect back on that altercation they had with you where you say, you're, I think you're projecting, you're a shadow on this other person, you know, and go, hmm, maybe there was something, you know, having done several months of therapy on the matter, maybe there was something to that conversation with Jason and they might come back to you and, and thank you for it, but it's not going to make any difference in the moment. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you've got to call it bad behavior, but um, I, 
part of the reason I've got some enthusiasm for this particular episode and for bringing this issue kind of more into the mainstream and what we talk about is that this works better if everyone involved in the conversation accepts the idea that if they're in a situation of emotional reactivity, their stuff is on yeah. and yeah. they've got to, they've got to take responsibility for that stuff. Right? So the mere fact that you're activated, the mere fact that you're feeling scared or anxious or frightened, or, sorry, they're all for the same thing. <laughs> the mere <laughs> fact that you're feeling scared or angry or, um, just activated in some way that there's some emotional reactivity going on that means your shadow is triggered and activated and is in play in the situation mm -hmm. and so probably the right thing to do is just is just get yourself a little bit of distance self-soothe a little bit and then enough so that you've got some purchase on what's going on and then inquire into what was going on just then like what was up with that do it mm -hmm. with your therapist or a friend or on your own or using some practice that you're involved in, which I suppose segues probably to, to Jonathan's next talking point. <laughs> I don't know. At, at uh, some point it will, but I don't know if Jason finished. No, yeah. no. Yeah. I think like, I think it was, it was sort of a half finished question or thought, but it was like kind of uh, when you were talking, this will just be the capstone and then we can go right to John. But um, uh, uh, it was just about that, the way you were talking about, calling like we're about um uh like some where some of those where some of those shadow directions can lead spiritual teachers um and and then what the subsequent effect would be on the people that they are teaching um that that just kind of got me thinking about like it like it was literally like how do how do we solve that as a as a community like as a network where where we can start to see you know the the beginnings of this like we, we maybe we Maybe we can't see their shadow, but we can smell it, you know? Right. Um, and so, I, but yeah, but I, I think you're right. We can't call it out. There's, there's gotta be something else, but I don't know if I can answer that now. No, that's a, that's an inquiry. I think it'd be good to, it'd be good for us to talk some more about it. I wanted to quickly pick up on your spiritual colleagues thing. Um, Cause I think that's beautiful. I think, I think accepting that being in a relationship with this person, there's something transformative in the relationship and it's the meshing of, of your evolving self and their evolving self together and what that allows you to see about each other. Mm -hmm. So, which is where I've shifted to as I've, as I've gotten older in, as a person that runs communities is that I, like I've got a role, right? Like it's my, it's partly my job in, in a local community in Sydney. It's partly my job to read a lot of stuff, right? And to have, to hold a space of inquiry and scholarship around material and to, and to, facilitate and and host conversations amongst people about their spiritual work and about their spiritual journey and about their spiritual practice and you know I've, I've got a particular role in this community but a lot of what I uh, what a, a lot of what I think we get in our community is by being spiritual colleagues by by understanding that we're all people that take spiritual life seriously and I'm not teaching that right like the, the community as a community we're teaching each other I think mm -hmm. and it's the, it's the interaction between us. I think there's, again, like I watched the documentary about Chogim Trungpa's um, work in the 70s, and he's a very controversial figure and, and a huge study in potentially shadow all on its own. But, but the stuff, the thing I really, the single most inspiring thing I got out of it, the, the, the thing that made me really rethink what it meant to be a spiritual leader or whatever, was his oldest students who were there in the, in the earliest days the picture you got of, they, they said, one guy said, I, I really miss him as a teacher, but he's the best friend I ever had. And 
when people talked about him, what they talked about was someone who was just completely fully there as a human being. He was the most fully, people talk about realization, right? The most fully realized human being, the, the most whole person they'd ever met. And that was terrifying in a way because you, you're getting confronted by all the ways in which you're not whole when you're with that person. Um, and that was most of what they got from it was just being confronted with that picture of a whole human being. And I thought of, you know, the kind of ways people react to Jesus in the gospels and that you're getting confronted with a whole human being. So more than, more than being a wise guide or a clever teacher or, or, a, or a lineage holder in lots of amazing spiritual practices or a, or a great scholar of, of tons of texts, that picture of what it could mean to be a spiritual guide com has completely inspired me ever since. Mm. That, that inspires most of what I do. I, I, I think anything I'll ever achieve is a pale shadow of any, any of that, but that's the thing that makes the most sense to me in terms of being a spiritual leader is to work out how to be the most fully realized human being you can be so that that acts as a, that, that human being is the guide for others. Mm -hmm. So mm. get back to me in 30 years and I'll let you know how I'm getting on. <laughs> we'll do a follow-up show. Yeah, no. um, before, before we move on, uh, I'll just touch on uh, uh, Bishop Tim talking about being nice, right? It's imperative to be nice and how spiritual people are nice and they're nice to other people. But I, I think often niceness is a way of avoiding the shadow and deepening the shadow and pushing things into the shadow, right? Uh, right. Kindness, generosity, love, compassion, these don't necessarily have to be nice. <laughs> these no. are different concepts from nice. Sometimes they're nice. Sometimes they're not. Well, and it's often when they're not that they're uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, strike you. Yeah. yeah. The, the key thing is why are you doing it? Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you doing any of that stuff? Are you being kind and generous and compassionate because you're scared of what people will think if you're not? Are you being yeah. that way because you feel like you have to? It's, a, it's my duty that I have to do that. That's what I've taken on. Mm -hmm. That's the, you know, good, good things can come from both those things, sure. But I think, to, I think the picture we're handed in the Gospels is that that stuff happens. It's like physics. <laughs> it's like physics. I, I, it flows out of you like water from a, from a fountain. You know, it's not, it's not something that's about preserving a preserving a self-image or a self-system. It's not something about preserving, you know, we're being explicitly told you should not do this stuff in order to preserve your social standing or your self-image in your community, right? And if you have to do it in secret, but, yeah. but it should flow forth because your system doesn't appear to have, uh, you know, any other way of being in the world. That's just how it is. Um, and that only comes from the sort of full liberation of the, the boundary between ego and shadow to me. Anyway, sorry. So we, we have to start wrapping up, but uh, quickly, if we could touch on, and of course, as, as per usual, when we do shows like this, we have already touched upon it, but what can we actually do? <laughs> we talked a lot about it, what are specific ways and techniques to do shadow work. We've talked a bit about meditation and how it can have some pitfalls and how it can be good and an effective technique. And we've talked about therapy. What else? Jason, you got anything? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if it's it's not li it's not literally shadow work in the sense that I don't know if anybody's ever applied it this way. But like, 
Um, uh, like I've also been sort of uh, melding a lot of stoic uh, practice to my uh, to my spiritual practice um, uh, in a lot of ways because there isn't there isn't often a lot of sort of mythological craft around stoic practice. Uh, so it, it, I find it applies easily. And one of the things that stoic practice often involves is that when you are feeling really activated, you have this moment where you say, um, like, you are not the thing itself. You are simply the sensation of the thing or the reaction to the thing. And then you take that emotion and you do, you do externalize it a little bit from yourself. Like you do see it as a thing that is happening to you, but is not you. And I think there could be a danger there that could, that could quickly go into a spiritual bypassing route. But I think if you, if you, if you then say like, okay, this is not me, but this is a thing that's affecting me. Now I'm going to hold this up and examine it. It's almost like, like that stoic practice can then become a way to like, you know, uh, uh, to, to then to turn uh, a floodlight on a very particular area of your shadow, because you're now, uh, you're using that activated moment to be the way you target the, the, the floodlight. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it really uh, does. I, there's a, a developmental psychologist, Robert Keegan talks about, um, you know, a big part of personal development is, is taking what starts off as subject. It's me and making it an object. So it, it's something the me is looking at. So that mm -hmm. keeps kind of refining what your subject is and makes more of you into the object that you that's within awareness. So um, a few things, Jonathan, I think uh, for me, so meditation is massively valuable because it gives you some space and, and equanimity and calm to be able to do the kind of work Jason's talking about. And it, it lets you kind of retain a, a solid ground in all the turmoil. Um, I think just being in relationship and taking, look, I uh, take very, very seriously the statement, every time you're being emotionally reactive, any time your emotional system is, is activated, there's some, there's shadow going on. So, so what is that? So there's a, um, integral psychology, there's a, there's a neat little journaling practice called, um, the three, two, one process. So I can, we can, you have show notes for this, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. So I will dig up a link of the 321 <laughs> shadow process if people are Googling along at home, but um, but we'll find a canonical link for that and send it through to you. But it's a nice little way of, of going through that process of objectification, you know, from a third person perspective, what just happened from a second person perspective, what am I accusing you of? And then from a first person perspective, what is this? What is this in me? How is this showing up in me? Like what's mm -hmm. going on in here? So it's sort of taking that thing that you're projecting out there and drawing it progressively back into here. So you you pull your projections back. So that's one dimension. The second thing is, is interjections, which is things you believe about yourself that you got handed by someone else when you were a kid that drive you. So, so things like my, I, you know, secretly I'm cruel and self-centered. Pro tip, you know, I am cruel and self-centered, right? Because <laughs> if I wasn't, I'd die. Yep. Yeah. Right. So if something's coming at me, I have to kill it. Like if something lethal is coming at me, I have to kill it. And I am self-centered because if I have to choose between eating and not eating and, and, you know, being compassionate to somebody versus saving myself, there's a, there's, that's true in me. You know, I can't say that's not true in me. Those, those two things are true in me. Right. Yeah. After a little bit of shadow work, and I, I can acknowledge this and that they're valuable. You know, there's, they're both ways of, of uh, taking things that are valuable in myself and kind of making them real. So 
that's an interjection that that I am cruel and self-centered and that's unacceptable. That's something that I that I took on when I was small and has been kept alive in me for five decades. So um, so with interjections, you have to take them and push, give them back to the person that gave them to you notionally. <laughs> so take them out of you and give them to somebody else. So there's a um, there's a few different. It's that's a little harder to deal with, but there's a uh, there's a really good book by a Canadian psychologist called Deirdrick Volsack, um, which again I'll get, I'll get it. It's called Choose Again. So it's about it's particularly um, like people who struggle with addictions find this have found this really valuable. But it's but we're all addicted to something, right? <laughs> so so his process is that you look for the places where you engage in in habitual conditioned behaviors, Facebook clicking, you know, Twitter, and you know. Um, binging on Netflix all the time or, or drinking or marijuana or whatever else it is you do, you know, obsessive meditation for hours and hours and hours a day or whatever. You look at your addictive patterns and then he's got a process of kind of going from the addictive pattern step by step back to, well, what is the belief that you took on when you were a kid and how do you let go of that belief? How do you give it back to the person that gave it to you? Mm. So that's a sec. So projections and introjections are things you deal with in different ways, I think. I think the third thing is... Um, it's just somatic work, just actually working out where your body's holding tensions and understanding that shadow is not a cognitive matter. It's a, it's a physical matter, which is, again, Secret Book of John, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're directly told this. It's in your body. So, so all the stuff that you're repressing and holding back, you're, you're specifically repressing it. Part of how you repress it is by holding it in your muscles. So the particular way my head juts out and that my shoulders are tight and the particular kind of tension I hold in my gut and a certain way I hold my pelvis, you know, there's things I started doing as a little kid. Kids can't manage their feelings, right? So they fake it by tensing up because <laughs> it's all they can do. And yeah. you start doing that when you're little and you keep doing it um, until you're 53, apparently. So, <laughs> so anything somatic work is just, would, would just help to kind of loosen up the hold of that stuff. Um, there's, uh, and then, and then psychotherapy and then psychotherapy, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I and I fully agree with the psychotherapy. Um, uh, just as an interjection for like body listening, something that we did in theater school that I found really helpful has been a process where you you basically you stand up, you bend over like you're touching your toes, and you roll your spine up until you let your head uh, um, come up and like to to the point where you feel your skull is balanced on your spine. And generally, what I found every time I do this is that my head is much higher. Uh, when it's balanced on my spine than how I normally hold it. I normally mm. hold it more down, like more tense, more, more, uh, uh, yeah, like all kinds of different physical body things. But when you do that, the so you'll, you'll notice your skull, but you'll also notice your back, you'll notice your arms, you'll notice your legs, you'll, you'll notice all of these places uh, in your body, simply by doing an exercise that isn't even asking you to like, memorize a prayer or, you know, like, or, or, uh, uh, follow a particular system. It's just like, where am I feeling something? Exactly. Uh, what I'll add and on, right? Yes. <laughs> well, talk a bit about that. Talk a bit about body scanning. Oh yeah, the the, the body scan. Uh, the, it's a common uh, meditation technique. It's quite easy to learn. You can find guided ones, and and that's just it. Uh, throughout uh, a lot of uh, the body scan, you will often find these blockages uh, within the body, and it's even taught in some schools uh, of Buddhism that uh, when you get quite good at the body scan, it starts to become uh, almost automatic. It's quite hard to describe uh, in words, but then you will reach these blockages, and they'll say that these blockages are actually psychosomatic. They are complexes uh, where you, that 
uh, of things that you've been carrying that perhaps you view as negative shadow things and are now manifesting within the body. And you will address them through uh, what's discharging over your mind. So um, the other thing I was going to add, too, which I will put into the show notes, uh, is, uh, uh, again, something derived from Buddhism, but it is... Uh, sort of uh, updated for, for the West. It's, it's meant to be a practice for, for anyone, and it fits quite well with Gnosticism, in in my opinion. It's it's called Feeding Your Demons from uh, Lama Sutra Malone. Uh, I will link it in the show notes, because you can actually find it in article form. She, she does have a book, but it's, it's five steps. But uh, you actually start by, you know, there's something you want to address. You actually try to find it in the body. You focus there, and then you actually visualize it as a demon. Uh, and then instead of going to combat with this demon, banishing this demon, exercising this demon, wrestling with this demon, shouting psalms at this demon, you feed the demon. You find out what the demon wants. So you're visualizing this problem. You're visualizing this blockage. You're visualizing this psychological complex to find out why it has power on you and what it actually wants. And you visualize yourself having compassion for it and feeding it. And then you visualize the demon becoming the ally. You alchemically transform it into a positive force. And this this is very Gnostic in many ways. One, finding it within the body, right? Find the Archon within the body, alchemically transform the Archon into the Aeon. Um, so it's a, it's a great practice. Uh, I don't do it enough, but I have done it. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes. That said, uh, we'll have to end here. I know we could go on forever. We could go it's, on. I know. No, it's all right. Yeah. Well, you know, there's Halloween next year. There, there probably will be a next year. <laughs> we we can't tell. Um, it's probably not a mad idea to as, as you're going through guests to try to kind of bookmark some other people that might have good stuff to say about shadow and shadow work and and maybe do another panel with some other people. Yeah. Yes, it keeps giving as a topic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we had uh, Matthew Ramsey on for the, the second time, the, the show right before this, actually, so, so it's not out at the time of taping. But just like Jason was saying, oh, I'd love to talk to that guy about a few things. Uh, and obviously, he has a lot to say about Shadow. So perhaps we will have a part two, but we'll have uh, an all-new panel. Talk versus online conference. <laughs> yes. Precisely. <laughs> so uh, I have to wrap up with the, the scariest, spookiest thing of all, which is begging for money. Uh, that's <laughs> patreon.com slash Gnostic. We literally cannot do the show without you. The show is brought to you by viewers like you. We do have to hire the world's best digital studio, 99 Perspectives, out of Chicago. So we would lose money if, uh, if people weren't supporting us. So to the patrons that do support us, thank you so much. And if you do like what we're doing, and I know that these are particularly hard, times but you if you can spare as little as a dollar per piece of media per month you can sign up for patreon you can also uh set more and also set limits so that you're not spending too much if we're putting out tons of content that month uh if you want to do a one-time donation you can do it to paypal.me slash gnostic and finally if you're unable to financially support us i definitely understand you can support us lots of other ways so like subscribe share tell friends about the show put it on your social email uh, to, put it on your social media email it to your pals so thank you so much uh this is i can't remember mike fake scary name uh deacon jonathan stewart <laughs> signing off for halloween 2020 thanks so much guys that was fantastic Thank you.